This is Eric Mann. I'm the host of Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement building show. Today, we're going to have Ernesto Arce talking about South Central Third World News. And you could say the main feature is going to be my review of the horrible pro-imperialist film, Belfast. Now, if a lot of you have already seen it and thought it was wonderful, maybe I could get your head to screw around a few rotations or revolutions, as it were. The thing that's really strange about the film is that the film, of course, begins, as I say, with Brana's mythical family of supermodels. It begins with Ma, played by the gorgeous Katriana Balfe, a fashion model and the heroine of the series Outlander. She's married to, not surprisingly, Pa, played by Jamie Dornan, also Irish, who is a fashion model who then played, and I'm not kidding, Christian Grey in Fifty Shades of Grey. So that's what we're up against. Imperialist, patriarchy, misogynist, manipulation of the family. I can't believe how much positive press has got. It's been nominated for the best film, a brilliant going back into your childhood film. Now, during the height of the revolution, we did what we call counter-hegemonic cultural rebellion or the culture wars. I remember I was at a party and there was this group who was doing guerrilla theater. They were from Scandinavia. They were very talented. And yeah, there was this super beautiful woman. And it turns out that she was a Bond girl, but in their play, she was there to assassinate James Bond. So... I didn't really know that James Bond was a spy for Her Majesty's Secret Service. Here I am, an anti-imperialist, and I'm just going watching James Bond kill people and suspending disbelief. And here this play is saying, do you know James Bond is a pig? And I got it. And then, of course, you've begun to go through the whole thing about how many other cultural symbols of imperialism have you become friendly with? How many policemen? How many CIA agents? How many nasty people? So that's the purpose of imperialist culture, to get you to like imperialism. So in this context, in the spirit of the guerrilla theater and counter-hegemonic cultural wars, here's my review of the film Belfast, invented, directed, and written by Kenneth Branagh, is the story of a white Protestant family in Belfast in 1969 in Northern Ireland at a time of mass Catholic civil rights demonstrations against British-supported fascist Protestant it's called Unionists. In response, the family stands by and does nothing, engages in hackneyed, cloying family rituals, eats potatoes, drinks beer, declares their love for Protestant Belfast, and eventually leaves for London, 
to escape the deterioration that the British and the Unionists had inflicted on the city. Now, this is the first of Brano's heinous trilogy. It will be followed by Birmingham, the story of a white Protestant family who witnessed the fire hoses, dogs, and murders of four black children in Birmingham, Alabama. They see the civil rights marchers in the street, but they stand by and do nothing, get hackneyed cloying rituals, drink beer, eat white bread with mayonnaise, declare your love for the white South, and finally move to Meridian, Mississippi, where they do nothing as the black revolution is burning up history. This will be followed by Brana's already acclaimed classic, Berlin, the story of a white Protestant Aryan family who witnessed the Jews being taken to the concentration camps. They see the communists and Sophie Scholl leading the resistance, but they stand by and do nothing, engage in hackney, cloying family rituals. They eat brats, they drink beer, they declare for Aryan Berlin, and they eventually move to Buchenwald to build a new life. Now, when I heard around the film Belfast, with some appreciation of Kenneth Branagh, except for his actual life, and assuming this to be a film sympathetic to the IRA, I paid my $20 for streaming, which is now the fee for first-run films at home in the age of permanent pandemic. Why I had that fantasy is a product of my revolutionary hope and vulnerability to capitalist marketing. Belfast opens with white fascist Protestants attacking the Irish Catholic minority in brutal, thuggish pogroms. This is it. No context, no explanation of the specific abuses of the ultra-Protestant loyalists or the Royal Ulster Constabulatory, RUC, which is the overwhelmingly Protestant police force. No portrayals of Catholic resistance, nothing. This is a conscious device by Kenneth Branagh to make a film about Belfast in 1969 in the midst of a bloody civil war, and yet to avoid all references to history with Van Morrison songs that have nothing to do with anything going throughout the script. Now, since I can't critique Belfast the film without myself learning more about the history, I'm appreciative of Wikipedia articles that lay out the story succinctly. This is the history that the film Belfast chooses to cover up. And again, impossible to know the film is made in 1969, right? But there's going to be nothing that actually happened in Belfast. Northern Ireland, which is a construction of the British Empire, is separated from a border with the Irish Republic, which is majority Catholic. Now, Northern Ireland and Belfast, which is in it, are majority Protestant, most of whom identify as Unionists, meaning the union with Great Britain, not a union with the Irish Republic. The vast majority of Irish Catholics were demanding civil rights and equality, with some supporting self-determination and alliance with Ireland, but all seeking full democratic rights inside Northern Ireland which is why they call themselves a civil rights movement. Now, in the black movement, some people wanted a black nation, some people wanted armed struggle, but everybody wanted 
civil rights, no segregation, no segregated buses, no police brutality. Everybody agreed on that. And that's what was going on in Belfast by the Irish in 1969. A major civil rights movement, as the Black movement encouraged resistance all over the world, was led by groups like the People's Democracy, with heroic figures like Bernadette Devlin and thousands of others who carried out a sustained and effective resistance. In 1969, the very year in which the film is situated, the Ulster Protestant Volunteers, UPV, a paramilitary force allied with the fascist Ian Paisley, bombed water and electricity installations in Northern Ireland, leaving much of Belfast without power and water. They also attacked and killed several Catholics and vehemently opposed the growing Irish Catholic-led civil rights movement. There was no flood in the film. There were no organized Catholic groups. It was just a bunch of rowdy Protestants beating up a group of unarmed and unorganized Catholics. So there'll be no history allowed in Kenneth Branagh's Belfast. But there was a resistance. In 1969, there was a long march from Belfast to Derry, modeled on a civil rights march from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama. This is important. The Black movement spurred heroic movements all over the world who looked to the Black movement for inspiration. Imagine you're being beat up in Belfast. Somebody says, why don't we march from Belfast to Derry, just like they marched from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama, the capital. So the Black movement was impacting the Irish civil rights movement quite a bit. In fact, civil rights movements all over the world at the time. Now, the purpose of the march was described by one activist as pushing a structure towards a point where its internal procedures would cause a snapping and breaking to begin. Minute there, that's what we thought. Throw yourself into the wheels of the machine. Prevent it from functioning, right? That's a lot what the civil rights movement direct action was about. Devlin, the amazing Bernadette Devlin, described it as an attempt to, quote, pull the carpet off the floor to show the dirt that was underneath. The march was attacked repeatedly along the way, but as it developed and drew a more supporters and participants by marching through Protestant territory, where it was repeatedly blocked and threatened, the long march exposed Northern Irish brutality and the unwillingness of police to defend the right to protest. Note the situation in Birmingham, where the Black civil rights movement forced the hand, forced the police dogs, forced the water hoses, and forced the whole world to say, this is what the United States is really like. So this is what they're doing, is if the Protestants are saying, oh, everything's good here, and the British are saying, oh, they're really happy here, this was calling the question. As they neared Derry at Berntelet Bridge, the marchers were ambushed by loyalists and members of the RUC, which is the police force. 87 activists were hospitalized. When the marchers reached Derry, the city exploded in riots. Following a night of rioting, RUC men entered the Bogside, a Catholic ghetto, 
wrecked a number of houses, attacked several people. This led to a new development. Bogside residents set up vigilante groups to defend the area. Barricades were put up and manned by the locals for five days. It also created a context in which older Republican veterans could emerge as prominent figures within the movement. For example, Sean Keenan, later important in the Derry Provisional IRA, was involved in pushing for defensive patrols and barricades. Now, the voice you're hearing is Eric Mann. I'm reading my article, Belfast, that you can get online in the terrific counterpunch.org. And what's great about this is in this story, again, covered up and whitewashed by Kenneth Branagh, as the civil rights movement is moving forward, some of the more militant people from the IRA come in to help them and they form their own barricades. They stand up physically against the police. That happened in every city in the United States during the 60s. I'll say it over and over again. How in the world Kenneth Branagh is going to get nominated for Best Picture when at least it should be called Best Cover-Up? In return, the government introduced more repressive legislation, specifically banning civil disobedience tactics such as sit-ins. So you know they say nonviolent, nonviolent. Dr. King was nonviolent. They don't tell you that they didn't let you do sit-ins either. So they're totally lying in the United States about, yeah, why don't you be nonviolent? Until you were nonviolent and they beat you up for doing that. This gave the movement something else to resist. In April, there were more serious riots in Derry and the barricades went up again for a brief period. Meanwhile, direct action around concrete issues continued, according to Devlin. In the first half of 1969, the activists around concrete issues continued, according to Devlin. In the first half of 69, the activists around Eamon McCann housed more families via squatting than all the respectable housing bodies in Derry put together. In mid-1969, Prime Minister Terence O'Neill resigned and was replaced by James Chichester Clark, who announced the introduction of one man, one vote. The civil rights movement had achieved its key demand. However, additional demands concerned police violence and state repression. However, additional demands concerned police violence and state repression. Two of the most prominent issues were the Special Powers Act which gave nearly indiscriminate power to the state, including internment without trial, and the B-Specials, a part-time auxiliary police force seen as sectarian and made up exclusively of Protestants. So in other words, just like the gang intervention groups in LA that can arrest you without a trial, just like all the special ops, that's what was being done against the Irish by the Protestants, right? This organizing led to a pitched battle of the bog side, where the civil rights movement became a localized insurrection against the state. When the RUC retreated, that is the police, and the British army respected the barricades, there was a sense of victory. Bernadine Devlin, who took part, recalled, 
we reached the turning point in Irish history. We reached it because of the termination of one group of people in a Catholic slum area in Derry. In 50 hours, we brought a government to its knees and we gave back to a downtrodden people their pride and the strength of their convictions. Now, I can't try to keep getting you angry at Kenneth Branagh if you don't want to be, but this is just so unprincipled of a film. You know, it's just such a live film that how is it possible that all this is going on in Belfast, in Derry, marches, police, armies, resistance, barricades, and as you'll see, none of that happened in Kenneth Branagh's fairy tale about the Belfast in which he grew up in 1969. So there's two postscripts I want to tell you about. And obviously, while I'm down on the film, the history is really important and motivating. So I'm almost more interested in telling you the history because then you'll say, oh my God, what in the hell was wrong with this film? Bernadine Devlin and the Black Panthers. When Bernadine Devlin, elected to parliament, went on tour of the United States, yes, in 1969, pardon my redundancy, she allied with the Black-led civil rights movement and made a primary association with the Black Panther Party. She wanted to make clear that the movement for civil rights in Northern Ireland was allied with the Black revolutionary movement and revolutionary movements all over the world. She took on the sadly racist and anti-communist U.S. Irish majority, danced with a black man on stage, and was called Fidel Castro in a miniskirt, who she took as a male chauvinist compliment. The point is that Devlin, who had her differences with the armed struggle wing of the Irish liberation movement, and then with her, is still one of the many Irish Catholic resistance fighters who should have been in the film and our consciousness. She symbolized the fight for socialism and black liberation in the US. This would have been a great coda to the Belfast whose story deserved to be told. Now, what's interesting, of course, is most Irish are anti-black. Most Irish are racists. I grew up in, in New York with the Irish and Italians. They were anti-Semitic. They were racist. Irish Boston almost killed the blacks when they went to uh, try to integrate the schools. So Ireland, 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 there's all these books about how the Irish became white. And just to be clear, when she tried to come to uh, Chicago, Mayor Daly, who was white and Irish, said, no way that communist black glove was coming to Chicago. So for the white Irish people listening to this, you know your people overall are racist. And that's why Branagh was able to get such a racist film you should write to me, Eric at Voices from the Frontlines. You should get the link and get this out to your friends and said, we are not racist Irish in bed with British imperialism. That's how you decide that you're not on the same side. That's all. When I say most of the Irish are racist, all the good Irish say, of course. But what are you doing to take on Irish racism? And what are you doing to take on this ridiculous film? Write to Eric at Voices from the Frontline, and we will send you the link to the film that will probably go out tomorrow anyway. 
This is the roughest one. Bernadette Devlin and her husband, Michael Michalowski, were shot and almost murdered by fascist thugs from the Ulster Defense Association with the express encouragement of Great Britain. On January 1981, Devlin and her husband, Michael Michalowski, were shot by members of the Ulster Freedom Fighters, a cover name of the Ulster Defense Association, UDA, fascists, who broke into their home near Coesland County, Tyrone. The gunman shot Devlin nine times in front of our children. British soldiers were watching the Mikowski home at the time. It's like when the police say, we're going to guard Martin Luther King. And then they let all the murderers in. But they failed to prevent an assassination attempt. How's that possible? You're guarding the building. It has been claimed that Devlin's assassination was ordered by British authorities and that collusion was a factor. An army patrol of the 3rd Battalion, the parachute regiment entered the house and waited for half an hour. Devlin has claimed they were waiting for the couple to die. Finally, another group of soldiers, more decent soldiers, then arrived and transported her by a helicopter to a nearby hospital. By a miracle, she and her husband survived. Dude, that would be a great film, huh? Oh, I guess not. No, it wouldn't serve Kenneth Brown and it wouldn't serve the U.S. and British Empire. Okay, I've had to give you all this history because otherwise you're not going to know why am I so mad at this stupid film. I'm mad at it because it's a lie. I'm mad at it because, as you'll see, it is still rooted in the Protestant Catholic fight, but none of that history is being told to you. The film Belfast begins with Branagh's mythical family of supermodels. It begins with Ma, played by the gorgeous Kytriona Balfe, a former fashion model, and the heroine of the series Outlander. She's married to, not surprisingly, Pa, played by Jamie Dorman, also Irish, who was also a fashion model, and who then played, and I'm not kidding, Christian Grey in Fifty Shades of Grey. So here they are, your typical working-class couple of movie stars. Then Branagh cast cute as a kitten, Jude Hill, to play their youngest son, Buddy, who we assume was Kenny when he was nine. Buddy is set up to steal the show with his pretty face and captivating smile. And finally, to round off this typical working class Protestant family is Granny, played by Judy Dench and Pop by Ciarian Hines, such highly respected actors in politically and dramatically demeaning roles. Now, Brown's casting was modeled on the work of Lenny Riefenstahl, and for those of you who don't get what a great line this was, Lenny Riefenstahl was the famous fascist filmmaker who always had these beautiful Aryan families in the heroes of her film so that everybody would love fascism. So that's what Kenneth Branagh did. He cast a supermodel family with Judy Dench and Sierra Hines. How are you not going to like this family? They were cast to be loved. At least at the outset, we're dying to love this family. But from the first scene, there's the troubles with the name of the fights between the Catholics and Protestants. 
A vicious Protestant mob is attacking minority Catholics in Belfast in a violent pogrom, as the Catholics are terrified captives with no way to go. Now, Paul and Mark Protestant do not agree with these tactics. Neither do they do anything to oppose them. Then the film moves into the smaller screen of the nuclear family, isolated from history. It turns out beautiful Ma has been paying off the bills run up by handsome Pa. She's so proud that after years of monthly payments, she asks the bank for a statement that she's paid in full, only to find out that her husband has lied to her by not telling her that it will take many more years to pay it off. Now, Ma's furious and breaks plates in protest. And in the preparation for their Oscars, Katriana acts like this is the most greatest acting breakthrough that she broke the plates, right? And how great Kenny was to give her the freedom. It makes me vomit. But after that dust up, the relationship goes back to normal. Pa, facing very depressing work opportunities in Belfast, is a contract worker who commutes to London for two-week stints. The bus ride alone is 16 hours round trip. He's a good worker, a good father, and his own way, a good husband. He's clearly a good guy in this film. But while Pa is away, his family, as much as they try to live a normal life, can't avoid the constant turmoil as the Protestant majority just can't stop themselves from attacking and abusing Catholics who do nothing to resist in this film. But he goes to school, he's a good kid, always smiling and a good student. He gets along with everybody and has a crush on Catherine, his schoolmate, played by Olivia Tennant. Now at school, the teacher places the students in rows of two based on their grades with the best students at the head of the class and the worst far back 10 or 12 rows of more, each with two on each row. Now, Buddy, who's already an excellent student, sits in the second row. And yet his hope for a girlfriend, Catherine, sits in the front row. So his goal is to get to the front row, both for his own achievements, but mainly to sit next to Catherine. So Grandpa has a brilliant idea. In one of the many cringeworthy speeches, in one of the cringeworthy speeches, he tells Buddy, well, you know, the key to doing well in math is to make your numbers unintelligible so the teacher can't figure them out. Make your one look like a nine, your seven like a five, your six like an eight. And she'll have to give you a great grade because she won't know one number from another. So imagine... If the correct answer was 3,751, Buddy's answer could look like 9,425, 8,750, or anything but 3,751. This is, of course, a recipe for disaster. But to continue the charade in the script, when the teacher's giving out grades, she tells Buddy, well, you need to work on your penmanship but I'm putting you at the top of the class. Only white Protestants could even imagine such an outcome. But to Buddy's chagrin, Catherine, who carried out the old-fashioned 
get the correct answer and write your numbers legibly approach is demoted to the second row. So poor Buddy is thwarted again. Now sweet Buddy falls on the influence of his mischievous cousin, Moira, played by Laura McDonald. Moira tells him he should join her gang and he enthusiastically agreed. In his first initiation, they all shoplift and Buddy brings home the spoils, but he is identified and charged by the shopkeeper. The police come to the house to scare the hell out of him, but behind his back with a wink and a nod to his parents, they just think that if, you know, Protestant boys will be boys. Needless to say, a working class Catholic kid in Belfast would be placed in juvenile prison by now. In a subsequent scene, Moore tells Buddy that because he did not rat out his co-thieves, he is being promoted in the gang. Here is his great opportunity to join the rampage to the streets to attack an Indian grocer. Moira explains to Buddy, Buddy, I didn't tell you this, but our gang is a fascist youth group and we hate Catholics, but right now we plan to go to the Indian grocer and smash his store, steal his merchandise because he's a foreigner and we're Protestant and we basically hate everybody. Isn't this great? And Buddy Branagh keeps acting confused. Now, I thought he was a straight A student. What about where a fascist gang about to an, attack an Indian man did he not understand? So as the gang runs through the streets and attacks the Indian man's store with a mob vengeance, screaming epithets, breaking windows, destroying the entire structure of the store, terrifying the owner, and stealing merchandise, Buddy, always the reluctant accomplice, finally accedes to group pressure and steals a big bag of flour to bring back to his family. Now, here's one of the most moving scenes in the film. As Billy brings back the stolen property, Ma's supermodel is truly outraged. We do not ever steal. Where did you get this? You must return it. And outraged, as all good Protestants must be about looting, except looting from the colonies, Ma drags Billy back into the mob, into the riot to return the flower. She does nothing to stand up to the fascist. Of course, she does not tell Buddy, stop acting so confused. You knew damn well what you were doing. No, she does nothing to help the Indian shop owner. But in the midst of chaos, returns a bag of flour into the rubble. Somehow this is a story about character. Now the leading fascist organizer, Billy Clanton, played by Colin Morgan, the evil Protestant unionist, threatens Pa in the streets. Gotta remember, Pa is like a reluctant fascist. He does not wanna beat up anybody. He just wants to mind his own business. But this guy picking up that he's not an active fascist is jacking him up. He says, in this war against the Catholics, you're with us or against us. And if you're not sufficiently anti-Catholic, I will have to hurt you. Oh boy. So here's the high noon scene. But Pa Gray stands up to him in one of the most moving speeches in the film. He says, if I choose to do nothing, that is my business. I stand for nothing. I do nothing. I think about nothing, 
but myself and my family, and no, I do not want to hurt the Catholics. Do I stop you? Do I stand in your way? Do I help the Catholics? No, I do nothing. So get the hell out of here or I'll fight to the death for my right to do nothing. And of course, this is the soft on the belly of fascism in this country. All the white people that like it, they don't want to do it, but they just say to others, leave me alone. I support you. But no, I'm not going to go out there and lynch people. But neither am I going to help black people who are being lynched. So leave me alone. I'm the soft underbelly of fascism. And I ask a lot of you listening to this who do nothing except listen to TV and blog and whatever you do. Now you like pa. You want the right to do nothing. But as the economic conditions get worse and the troubles intensify, Ma and Pa have a heart-rending debate about their future. Pa, coming back from London, says, look, I have a great opportunity. They want me in London. They'll give me a real job with benefits and we can buy a house, get out of debt, get out of trouble. I'm tired of being accused of not hating Catholics enough. Tired of living in debt. We can have a home with a yard and a white picket fence in London, the center of the empire, and live happily ever after. But Ma, demanding her own moving speech from Brana, replies, but Pa, Belfast is a home. We grew up here as toddlers. We've loved each other since kindergarten. Sure, we can have a front yard in London, but here the kids can play in the street with no fear because they're Protestant. And I can always find them because they're not Catholic. And when we go to London, they will never respect us. They'll laugh at our Irish accent, never, never fully accept us as British, even though we love the British Empire. Now, sure, the beatings of the Catholics can be a distraction. But honey, Belfast is our home. We belong here. Maybe we're in debt. Maybe you're gone for two weeks. Maybe Buddy has joined a fascist gang. But we love it here. Belfast is our home. Finally, though, the pressures get too great and the opportunity become too enticing. Park convinces Ma it's time to go to Charlie off London where they can do nothing while the British Protestants and Her Majesty's police beat up the West Indians, the Africans, and the Pakistanis while the British Black Panthers and the Mangrove Nine lead the resistance. Now, now that Pa has died, Grandpa tells him, go forward and don't look back. And if our heartstrings are not torn enough, Buddy has to say goodbye to his girlfriend, Catherine. And as a leaving Belfast, Buddy tells his dad, Dad, I want to marry her someday, but you know, she's a Catholic. And in a scene that Brana compares to Kill a Mockingbird, Pa says, son, I don't care if she's Irish, Arab, green or blue. Of course, as long as she's not a Jew. I am a good Protestant but you can marry whoever you want. Of course, as long as I don't have to do anything about it. Besides, some of my best friends are Negroes. Brown is sanitized. And a historical Belfast is a massive cover-up of the centuries-old British abuse of the Irish people 
and their many supporters among Protestant neo-colonial Irish fascists. Worse, it's a complete whitewashing of the heroic reality of Catholic self-organization and resistance at the time of the entire world except Brana was watching. Belfast argues you should turn your back on the oppressed, raise superficial criticisms of the occupying Protestants, stay inside your pathetic nuclear family and get the hell out of here when the opportunity arises. This is the portrayal of Kenneth Branagh's actual life of which he should be profoundly ashamed. For Branagh to not have real Irish resistance leaders in the film puts this trash in the same garbage pail as Gone with the Wind. Now, Eldridge Cleaver, calling the moral question, said, we either part of the solution or part of the problem. Dr. Martin Luther King said he who accepts evil without protesting against it is really cooperating with evil. Now, when confronted with these criticisms, Branagh said, frankly, my dears, I don't give a damn. It is only because we're in the midst of a great counter-revolution in which imperialism is on the ideological ascendancy against the colony masses that a film like Belfast could ever have been made. Today, Belfast may be nominated for an Oscar, but the only award the film deserves is a Thatcher. My bio, Eric Mann is a veteran of the Congress of Racial Equality and the Newark Community Union Project. We work closely with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. His story is in the Civil Rights Movement Veterans website, crmvet.org. He's presently director of the Labor Community Strategy Center in South Central Los Angeles, working at the Strategies and Soul Movement Center. He and Channing Martinez co-host Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement building show on KPFK Pacifica in Los Angeles. He's the author of Playbook for Progressives, The 16 Qualities of a Successful Organizer. He welcomes comments at eric at voicesfromthefrontlines.com. Like I'm longing to live, I wish I could do all the things that I can do, though I'm way overdue, I'd be starting anew, well I wish I could be And you're listening to Voices from the Front Lines on KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, streaming online at kpfk.org. Our website is voicesfromthefrontlines.com. Do we have any comments from Ernesto and from Janet? The overall thought is freaking fantastic, first of all. There are so many critiques of films. And, you know, it's the overall theme of things I've been thinking about is that the movement is good at saying what we don't want. And I feel like the tradition, especially in the Black communist tradition and pro-communist tradition of being able to pivot the movement to say what we do want. And I think your view does that very well. It doesn't just say this is a trash movie, which it does say it's a piece of it. It also writes the very movie that 
we expected and that we deserved. And I think that's really great. The other thing is there's not very many good examples of films that really show the movement in real totality and endings that we really love and want to see. And, you know, one of the few that I saw this weekend as an example is the last season of um, The Man in the High Castle. And the last episode is fantastic. It does the ending exactly the way that you just wrote the ending for this film, where it actually shows a revolution winning um, and really pushes the boundaries to show us what it can look like for a revolution to win. One of the other things that makes this film so bad is that this is the film that's really playing out today in the United States. The Biden administration is fighting for its right to do nothing about Black people. It's fighting for its right to do nothing about Palestine, or I'm sorry, to do something about Palestine, but not in the favor of Palestine. Um, In Los Angeles, the Democratic Party is fighting for its right to do nothing, or basically to take the little menial wins of the white groups and say, oh, hey, we did something. But Black people are still 50% of all tickets and arrests and homelessness and et cetera, everything bad. And so I love this review. Um, I love the comedic parts of the review. Um, Frankly, my dare, I don't give a damn. I think that's hilarious. (laughs) And yeah, I I think it's just an overall great review. Well, one of the things that I'm writing about, I saw a revolution with my own eyes and I think this new generation, uh, including the older people that have lost their revolutionary fervor, they also don't want to see this because it challenges them. Like if, in fact, the Irish and Derry set up barricades, if 65 of them were brutally beaten by the police, if they marched, you know, if they obviously shot back and threw bricks and everything and won, then that raises the question of why aren't we doing that today? It's also inspiring. It would push you further. So here you have Bernadette Devlin, one of the most heroic mass attractive figures, but you got also prisoners in long cash prison. There are so many great films you could have done, but Branagh is, I'm afraid, is going to get an Oscar. And just shows me, Channing, we need a strategy to solve film theater. We need the Revolutionary Film Club. But if I may say, Voices from the Frontlines readers, as Channing and I sort of pour our hearts out to you, like I spent three days on this review, it's in Counterpunch. It will be in Medium. It will be in LA Progressive. I got to get it out to the Black commentator. But if you could take the link and send it to 10 friends and say, I heard the show today, you should listen to Eric's commentator. You should read it on Counterpunch. That would be what we'd want. And that would be beyond doing nothing. That would be doing something. We get very excited about the show. And then at the end of the show, you know, on, on Fox News, they say, go kill Black people. And everybody marches out of, the, out of their house to do so. If we say, go help Black people, nobody's doing any marching based on voices. So Voices listeners, we need you to step up. I hope you enjoy the review. Next week, Channing's going to talk about the whole campaign to get Howie Mitchell and to get Stephanie 
Wiggins to not enforce any fares, to make all the fares free, to arrest and fire anybody engaged in anti-Black activity and anything else we can come up with, we'll, we'll tell you next week. Nesto, any thoughts? I agree with what Channing mentioned, that uh, it was a great review. I found it very poignant, very funny. A lot of great history about, um, you know, the Irish Catholic tradition and its uh, fight against imperialism, British imperialism. So I, I guess I'm not going to watch the film. <laughs> yeah, you shouldn't watch. I mean, who knows? I think you should watch the film to see how great my review is and then send the review out to the question is uh would you will you send an email to 20 people with the link absolutely and and with the end says get in touch with eric at voices because that's what we're not yet successfully doing is we do a show we do a program we do a cultural criticism and we're looking for people who can take it out into the world you know the story of bernadette Devlin is so important. And now this is me talking as a black organizer, black former, I don't know what to call it, I ran for city council, whatever. Um, you know, the story of Bernadette Devlin is also super important because we're both calling on you, the listeners, to forward this to folks and give them give them a good example of what revolution could look like and introduce them to the revolution. But also we're calling on folks to take on the black elected officials in Los Angeles who are not doing the work like Bernadette Devlin, right? They're not putting their body on the line. She literally put her body on the line. And then when she came to the United States was ostracized for her politics. It shows a lot that while a lot of folks are down and out about recent uh, controversies around politics, just ask yourself, how much did that elected official really do to stand up for the black community? And I think that's the beauty of this review is that it shows an example of what can be done. And if I learned anything from this review and from the last episode of The Man in the High Castle, it's that you don't know until you know. You could be introducing someone to the revolution in many ways by just forwarding them this email. And I think it will mean a lot to the strategy center, but it will mean a lot to the movement. All the love that's in my heart Remove all the bars that keep us apart I wish you could know what it means to be me Then you'd see With the South Central Third World News, I'm Ernesto Arce with voices from the front lines and news from South Central to the Global South. Santa Monica street vendors are fighting back against a harassment campaign by local police to forcibly remove them from the pier. They say it's racist and that they've been treated worse than dogs. The immigrant vendors say the city has banned them from city parks, beaches, and pedestrian ways hitting them with expensive citations and even arresting some of them. The group released a video showing Santa Monica police officers aggressively shutting down vendors last week. The video and images of a caravan of enforcement agencies targeting food vendors 
as part of a policy to continue sowing fear into these communities. While many vendors whose fruits were confiscated and thrown in trash bags have permits, the current food laws make it illegal for them to cut fruit the desired requirement of the client. It did not matter that they had a, they had a posted permit on their carts. For many food vendors, the pathway to legalizing their food cart isn't easy. In fact, many vendors can't even start the permit process because of the high cost of a cart and a code that isn't friendly to their needs. And Santa Monica city officials know this. Sergio Jimenez, a community organizer with LA Street Vending Campaign, says Santa Monica police are terrorizing vendors and their families who simply want a way to earn a living. A few days ago, I was arrested while street vending and they confiscated my possessions as well as nearly fracturing my arm. Officer Howell is part of this and needs to be held accountable. This can't go on for any longer and we deserve rights as street vendors. Santa Monica officials say the city has strict rules for vendors on and near the piers, including no open flames, no cutting of fruit, and a requirement of a city permit. Council member Lana Negret cynically defended the forceful arrests of five vendors last week, saying these were not related to vending but for assault on an officer. But video showed a panicked vendor trying to defend herself against a group of officers and health department officials. She repeatedly asked them not to touch her or her food cart, and to give her her citation and let her go about her business. She pushed back only when a large male officer began prying her hands from the cart and was cuffed and presumably charged with assault. Residents of Pittsburgh are calling out the failure of successive administrations in refusing to upgrade the U.S.'s crumbling infrastructure. Ten people were seriously injured after a Pittsburgh bridge collapsed just before the rush hour, sending several to hospital. Pittsburgh has more bridges than any other city in the U.S., but many are damaged or compromised. President Biden just happened to be in Pittsburgh to tout a $1.2 trillion infrastructure plan that includes billions to rebuild and repair roads and bridges. But a local AFL-CIO branch says it was too little too late for those crossing the Fern Hollow Bridge. Biden rescheduled his press conference to show up at the collapsed bridge site where he lamented the tragedy and said he would fix all the bridges. A member of the press told him that the bridge had been inspected a year ago by an NTSB federal investigator. Biden shrugged his shoulders. A South African social justice campaign is calling for a permanent basic income grant. Assembly of the Unemployed is pressuring Cyril Ramaphosa to approve the proposal after the government's advisory council warned against it. AOU and other groups have campaigned tirelessly for the implementation of a basic income grant of 1,500 rands per month, about 100 US dollars, for all unemployed between the ages of 18 to 59, including caregivers, home-based workers, and temp workers who earn below the national minimum wage. The group says this will bring much-needed relief to millions of South Africans who are languishing in poverty. Matthew Parks is with COSATU, the Congress of South African Trade Unions, which made a strong argument for the grant. We've lost since the pandemic started 2.2 million jobs. So it is a ticking time bomb. I mean, as is COSATU, we support a basic income grant. And we think the question is, can we afford not to have one? Can we afford to have 8 million people with no source of income whatsoever? And we think the answer is quite simply no. 
Politically, morally, economically, we can't. The campaign released a statement criticizing the so-called independent experts who choose to turn a blind eye to the realities faced by millions of poor and unemployed South Africans. It called out the Economic Advisory Council for pushing disinformation that the country cannot afford a basic income grant. It cited a report by the Department of Social Development last year, which indicated that a basic grant was sustainable, especially with a progressive net wealth income tax of between 3 to 7 percent on the nation's wealthiest. Groups of citizens in Burkina Faso are protesting last week's military coup and the political party that suddenly rose up to take power, the so-called Patriotic Movement for Safeguard and Restoration, MPSR, forcibly removed the Social Democratic Administration of Roche Kabore that came to power in 2015 after 27 years of her right-wing military junta. Lieutenant Colonel Henry Paul Damiba, the MPSR's leader, held a meeting with members of the overthrown government. He warned the former ministers not to interfere with military actions and not to leave the country either. Damiba is a well-trained, high-ranking official who was trained by the U.S. military through its AFRICOM program. The Intercept reports that the nation's self-imposed leader participated in Operation Flintlock in 2010 and 2020. Then in 2013, he was accepted into the State Department-funded Africa Contingency Operations Training and Assistance, followed by more specialized U.S.-sponsored training in 2018 and 2019. Damiba is just the latest in a long line of coup leaders trained by the U.S. military, which has pumped more than $1 billion in so-called security assistance on the continent. ECOWAS, the 15-member Economic Community of West African States, condemned the coup d'etat with accusations about the military forcing Kabore to resign under threat, intimidation, and pressure. Kabore's People's Movement for Progress party led a protest of thousands of people in the streets of the capital, calling for an immediate reversal of the coup. They warned that the junta risked international sanctions for Burkina Faso. With the South Central Third World News segment of Voices from the Front Lines, I'm Ernesto Arce. Now back to Eric Mann and Channing Martinez in the studio. Like I'm longing to live I wish I could do And you're listening to Voices from the Front Lines on KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, streaming online at kpfk.org. Our website is voicesfromthefrontlines.com. Then I'd say. 